This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Fathers shape our lives in ways we do not always recognize. My own father grew up on a farm uh, near Watson, Minnesota, where only Danish was spoken. His mother was Danish, his father was Danish, and just about everybody in the community was Danish as well. He would certainly have been assigned to the English language learner class at school had he gone to school in the modern world. Instead, he was thrown into a country schoolhouse with other farm children who knew little English. He never spoke English uh, with the same dexterity that he demonstrated when manipulating numbers, and that certainly did affect his, uh, his life. But still, Dad did well enough to be recommended for high school by his eighth grade teacher. Yet family obligations required that he work instead on a neighbor's farm. Soon, Dad got to work at a station serving the burgeoning automobile industry, and before long, he was operating his own standard oil station in Montevideo, Minnesota, where I was born. He ran that business for 40 years, and I'm pleased to say he was known and respected for his integrity, his generosity, and his strong religious convictions. He remains for me a role model. I share this with you because I have with me on the Education Exchange today, the author of a new book entitled A Round of Golf with My Father, The New Psychology of Exploring Your Past to Make Peace with Your Present. The author is William Damon, a professor of psychology at Stanford University and the director of the Center on Adolescence at that university. Professor Damon's father went missing in World War II, or so it was told to Bill Damon. What really happened and how it affected Professor Damon's life is what Around the Golf is all about. So thank you, Bill, for joining me on the Education Exchange. It's my pleasure, Paul. Well, Bill, you have written an absorbing book, uh, one that really is hard to put down, about your own life, and it causes us all to reflect on our own relationships with our fathers. So why did you write this book? Well, like everything I do, and most people do, I had mixed motives. There was a personal motive that drove me, and that was to find out something about the man that fathered me, which I knew nothing about virtually, until I got a call from my adult daughter when I was in my 60s. And she said, Dad, I don't know if this is going to upset you or not, but I found out some things online about my grandfather, your father, and I figure I'll give you a chance. Do you want to hear about it or do you want to just have me forget all about this? And at that time in my life, I was ready to hear it. Earlier in my life, I wanted to know nothing about the guy at all because I kind of figured out that first in the early part of my life, I thought he had died in World War II. Once I found out that he was still alive, which happened about when I was in college, I figured I didn't want to have anything to do with the guy. I did, I, you mentioned your father being a wonderful role model. And of course, fathers, especially for sons, are important role models. I did not want a negative role model. I didn't want to identify with somebody who I assumed was an irresponsible, no account cad who had abandoned my mother and me. But when I was in my 60s and my daughter called me with some information, I got interested. So I had a personal desire to find out about this guy that had actually gone on to have a pretty substantial life. 
So that was my personal reasons. My professional reasons, frankly, is that, as you mentioned, I'm a lifespan developmental psychologist. I'm very interested in human development, all of the twists and turns that it can take. And I wanted to find out about this fellow that had a very interesting life with some ups and downs and achievements. So I did have a professional interest in charting the development of somebody who lived during a historic epoch, the World War II time, the post-war, Cold War time. He served in the Foreign Service. And I, I got interested in that as a kind of a case study. Well, it's a, it's, it was good for all of us that you did so. Um, you call your book a life review. You don't call it a memoir or an autobiography. You call it a life review because it is about yourself as well as about your father. And you say this is a new psychology, this idea of doing a life review. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you understand this new way of thinking about human development? Sure. Uh, when I started this investigation into my father's life and my own, and the question of how his life affected mine, I needed a method, I needed a tool, a research tool that was beyond anything I had done because my studies have been more traditional studies of normative studies of the development of purpose, moral commitment, and so on, but not in-depth case studies in an autobiographical sense. So I uncovered a method that was developed by Robert Butler, who was a legendary psychiatrist, who was actually the first director of the National Institute of Aging. He was a Pulitzer Prize winning author. Early in his life, before he became a public figure, he developed a method of going back over our lives, understanding where we've come from, what the high points have been, and understanding even how our regrets and our failures can be used in a positive way in terms of what we learned, in terms of how we can think about moving forward. And I got very interested in this. Uh, Butler did not have a chance to develop the method once he became a public figure, but I wanted to try it out. I thought this was exactly the right method for my own case study of my father's life and mine. And I thought it would be useful for other people to see how it worked in my case, because I think the life review is a very promising method. And Butler thought everyone should do one at all ages. He thought this, this was a way to have a positive, forward-looking take on who you are and what comes next in your life, and to get past resentments, regrets, all of the baggage and kind of psychological demons that virtually everybody carries forward and anybody that's had a life has had some challenges and difficulties. And Butler thought this was a good way to think about those in a way that would give you a positive, purposeful life forward. So that's why I did the life review. Well, I don't have much training in psychology, but I have read a little bit of Sigmund Freud and I never, I've never liked him. I really do not like Sigmund Freud. He's, there's a lot of stuff there. I absolutely uh, don't find of any value or yeah. if value in it, it's of negative value. So it's a little hard for me to take, uh, please distinguish the life review approach. From yes, well, well, the life review is, is kind of the opposite of a Freudian effort. Freud looked backwards and thought that people had traumatic events early in their lives. And if you could just go back and cure those ills, 
you could be all right. But it was a very um, kind of reclamation uh, help uh, deficit based idea. A life review is the opposite. It's a prospective attempt to think about what are your aspirations and purposes that you yourself have agency over that you can imagine. And a lot of it does come from things you've learned from the past, but it doesn't stop in your past. It, it's not something that you go back and you kind of uh, uncover repressed memories and that kind of thing. Rather, it's a way of thinking about your life in a way that brings the past forward. It brings it to the present and most importantly, to the future. So instead of a retrospective effort, the way Freudian psychology works, it's a prospective effort. And it's very hopeful, it's very purposeful. And it's really, the, I think, the frontiers of developmental psychology. This is, this is the new direction. That's why I call the book The New Psychology of Exploring Your Past to Make Peace with Your Present and to Forge a, way, uh, a Positive Way Forward in the Future. One of the things you just said there was agency. And I think of, of, of Freud as always being about non-agency. Exactly. You're held to do by your unconscious to do certain things. And so, but this is really focusing on the fact that you are a person that has a capacity for independent action. You're in control of your life. That's exactly right, Paul. It's, uh, it's the idea that we actually are the masters of our own destiny uh, through our beliefs, through our imaginations, and through our desires to both have an authentic, positive identity and to contribute to the world beyond the self as well. Well, your book is entitled A Round of Golf with My Father, and uh, you, you never met your father. So how could you have a round of golf with somebody you've never met? Well, this is a psychological thing, too. In, in, it was an imaginary round of golf, although I did get out on a course and play. My, uh, cousin, and your father was a pretty good golfer. I yes, that was, that was one of the first things I learned about him when my daughter made that consequential phone call to me. She uncovered a um, USIA oral history. My father was working in the Foreign Service. He had been dead for 20 years, but he appeared in a history of the United States Information Agency. And the, almost the first sentence of the oral history was, Phil Damon was a great golfer. And this astonished me. I love golf myself, but I am very far from a great golfer. And I got interested in that right away. I met one of my cousins that I had never met my, from my father's side of the family. He found a golf bag of my father's in a family garage in New England. And I thought, my God, what kind of a family keeps golf bags for 75 years? But he sent me the golf bag and in the canvas bag was a scorecard that my father had written out when he had played in a club in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. So I luckily found a connection to the country club, took the scorecard and went to play against my father's scorecard. And that was a kind of a, I mean, it was really a psychological exercise. It was a bit of a bonding exercise for me. It was a way I could share my love of the game with this father that I'd never had. And I did have resentments about how come this guy never showed up to teach me golf. And this was a way of kind of uh, at least confronting those resentments. And it gave me a path eventually to 
forgiving him, uh, even though that was difficult. So this is a podcast on education. This is the education exchange. So we, we must talk about schools. And the remarkable thing about uh, schooling is that you and your father both went to the same school, Phillips Academy in Andover, one of the country's premier private schools, a boarding school. Now, was this, there's so many questions I want to ask. Was this a coincidence? And uh, how could you afford this? And how could your father afford this? And, you know, let's just tell me a little bit about how this all happened. Yeah. Well, my father could afford it because he grew up in an old line New England family, and his father was a banker. And as a matter of course, they sent their children to independent schools. For me, I grew up in Brockton, Massachusetts, uh, the only son of a, an abandoned woman uh, in, um, in not very advantaged circumstances. And, and I never would have even heard of the place, Phillips Academy. It just was not in my social circles. In fact, when I finally went there, my friends thought I'd been sent away to a military school named Hanover, whatever that is, if that even exists. <laughs> but so I never understood, how did I get to Andover? How in the world? Uh, did I ever, even though it was only 60 miles from my home, it was a, it was a, a, a world apart socially and culturally, but I figured out, and I didn't, I did not know my father went there until I did my research in my sixties. When I discovered all this, I figured out that my mother must have even though he, she had been abandoned, even though she must have been very bitter about my father, she never talked to, about him to me at all. She still must have admired him enough that she sent her only child to the same school. And she arranged scholarship and funding for me. Of course, we could not have afforded it, but she, she was a very determined, tough, smart lady. And she arranged the whole thing. And I suddenly ended up in this marvelous educational environment that changed my life for sure. I actually, for the first time, became a good student, got interested in learning, and it, it gave me a whole new path forward. And as part of my life review, this was, a, this was a big deal because I understood finally, after all those years, one of the main things that had shaped my life and how that came to be. And that was very important for my self-understanding and putting my life in perspective. And that's one thing your father did do for you, uh, not intentionally, but just by the circumstances. Exactly. It gave me something as a, it gave me a, at least something to pin uh, a sense that I owed him something. Uh, of course, I owed him my life because without him, I wouldn't even be here. So uh, <laughs> yeah, well, that's of course true. But you know what? Your uh, your account. You don't brag about yourself, but it's quite evident that you were a better student at Andover than your father was, despite all the advantages he had had in life as compared to you. So what does that tell you about your father's character? Well, that's a great question, Paul, and it also illustrates something about motivation, too. Uh, my, my father was a very uh, easygoing, laid back, as we would say now, uh, character who was irresponsible in a lot of ways, especially when he was young. And of course, his irresponsibility came full force when he abandoned my mother and me and stayed in Europe after the war. But during school, he had a very, a very poor school record. He did not do his homework. He called out sick. He would go to the infirmary and fake illness to get out of exams. 
I was probably just the opposite. I was very ambitious. I couldn't believe how lucky I was to be at a, a school that actually was, had great teachers and great facilities. It's, it's almost a classic case of how somebody with lots and lots of privileges and with a very easy life uh, gets complacent in my father's case and doesn't try very hard. And I came from a very tough environment. I knew how lucky I was to have, an, have a chance, have a shot at life, and I was motivated. And so we had very different records at Andover. When I looked into the archives, I, could, I found out all about him and all about what my teachers told me. Some of the teachers were the same teachers, and they never told me. Nobody ever told me anything. I never knew the guy went to the place, but I, I, now I wonder, they're, they're all past by now, but I wonder, were they thinking, oh, Bill Damon, I remember his father, and you know, they, maybe they look alike, but they're different kinds of students, or, but I, I'll never know that. Uh, but it, it was a revelation to me that, uh, that he was there. He was young when I was born, so he was there just about 20, 21 years before me. Well, so um, still, um, maybe you have some of those characteristics of your father that uh, were not so fabulous. Did you, did you sort of think about that as you did your life review? I did. Uh, um, and th there were some things that, um, there, there, there were some things that I enjoyed seeing that I, I didn't, wasn't even aware of until I went back to my school records. Uh, it turns out that I was gregarious and outgoing when I was in school. I did not remember myself that way. I thought I was shy, but my teachers did not say that. They said the same things about my father. Um, and that, our developmental psychology research shows that that could be partly an inherited characteristic, being outgoing. I also found lots of comments about how stubborn I was. And um, that also kind of surprised me, but that was a, that went through a lot of my early records. Uh, and even uh, as I grew older, a lot of people have told me I'm stubborn. That, that was a, something that came out of my life review that gave me a clue to, gee, maybe I ought to change this. It's not too late. Being stubborn is not such a great thing. And so I'm trying to become a, less of a stubborn person. I don't know how we're just don't, don't just don't give this up too soon. <laughs> uh, I, I want to point out to you that most professors, if they amount to anything, are rather stubborn. Oh, interesting. That's where you get your independence. You're willing. Okay. Thanks, Paul. Has already been said before. I don't <laughs> understand how you've stood up against the tradition of a lot of work in psychology if you weren't such a stubborn person. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you for that. I, I, uh, all right, I, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> okay, so now uh, something else you did, which your father did, you both went to Harvard. Right. Can you talk about that? First of all, I, I don't. how did your father get into Harvard when he didn't even finish at Andover, but had to do his last year at some lesser institution? Yeah, and, you know, how did you get to Harvard when you were a good student at Andover, but you weren't sort of the top student in the class, as I recall from reading the book, maybe. That's right. Uh, that's right. I, in fact, one of the, uh, the Harvard on my Harvard record, the admissions officer said, said something like no one, no one would ever say that he's an outstanding boy, but he, but he is um, he has some things to contribute. But my father, uh, this was 1939 when my father was admitted to Harvard. And my guess is. It was the Great Depression. Uh, it must not have been that competitive. 
for a paying student. That's only my guess, and only Harvard could tell us what their admissions criteria were back then. But it did it did surprise me that he had been admitted after he had basically flunked out of Andover, spent the last year, I won't mention the school, but definitely at a more second-rate uh, boarding school. He still got in. He did not do well after he got into Harvard. He uh, his his secondary school record predicted his non-achievement when he was in college. Uh, I got in, I think I did have some strengths. I was, I was a, a pretty good writer and editor of the school literary magazine and wrote for the school newspaper. And I had a certain profile, but you know, it also may have helped me. And this was another thing maybe I owe my father on my records and on my father's school records, including Harvard, it always said killed in action in World War II. Everybody was deceived, just like my mother had deceived me. Uh, everybody else in in the world had was deceived. He had my father was in the foreign service. He had a secretive kind of career, and nobody knew about him, at least in terms of school records. And I'm guessing that probably from the Harvard's point of view, uh, having um, it on their records that my father was an alum who was killed in action during World War II. They probably gave me at least credit for being the son of an alum, even though he never graduated. And maybe they even, who knows, maybe they gave me a, an extra point because he had died fighting for our country. I, I, I honestly don't know, but that may have helped me a bit. Well, we do know they had affirmative action for legacy kids. Yeah. Back then, and they still do at Harvard. So uh, oh, do they still? Uh, oh, yeah. They, they don't. They can't deny it anymore because it's been proven in the court of law. So uh, <laughs> right okay. on, the, uh, on the pages that are being looked at by the Supreme Court today. <laughs> okay, well, I won't comment on the policy, but I'm, I'm glad Harvard took me because it was a very good education. Well, I'm delighted to hear that. So um, now, how about your mom? I mean, how, how did learning about your father change your thinking about your mother? Well, it gave me a lot of enormous sympathy for her because I could see firsthand up close uh, how devastated she was uh, in the years when she was waiting for him to come back. And I dug up a lot of records about how, at least for three or four years, she kept in close contact with his parents. We would visit them. There were little notes in the local newspaper from Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Uh, Mrs. Damon and her son is visiting their parents, that kind of thing. And it must have been such a blow for her. So I, I was very sympathetic with her. And also I gave her credit for then taking over and, uh, and being a, a very dedicated mother to me in a lot of ways. I also, though, uh, have a, a bit of... Um, I won't say anger, but a, a dismay that she had deceived me for so long and never talked to me about him. And in doing that, she also deprived me of a relationship with my father's side of the family, uh, which includes some wonderful cousins I have that I've gotten to know. His younger sister, who was my dear aunt for about 10 years before she died, after I found out about her. And my father had two children, uh, daughters, who are my half-sisters, and I've actually become close to them in the few years that I've had since I've discovered this. And of course, my mother's, um, my mother's failure to talk to me about any of this uh, deprived me of this for most of my life. And so I have, on the other hand, I have to admit, I didn't take the initiative myself. 
And uh, so I take some responsibility. I, I never had a conversation with her during her whole life about him, and I could have initiated that myself. So that was one of the regrets that I write about in my book and that I had to come to terms with in my life review. Because you knew that he was not killed when you were a college student, I think. Exactly. When I was in college, she admitted, finally, uh, that he was alive. He was even sending her $100 a month in child support. She offered to share it with me. I declined. And she lived for another 42 years, and I never talked to her again. That conversation lasted about a minute. And I take responsibility for that. But for the first 20 years of my life, it was her who was saying only he was missing in World War II and not disclosing the truth to me. So it, it was a shared responsibility. Yeah, we've been too negative about your father so far, because you say in later in the book that the army alters your father's character, or at least it brings out the strengths in his character. So could you talk about how, you know, this is often said that, you know, some adolescents, once they get into the armed forces, it has an incredibly positive effect on not on all of them, but on some of them for sure. So maybe you can talk about that. Yeah, this, this is a very classic developmental story, and the military has done this hundreds of thousands of times with young men who uh, get off to a, a slow start in life or an irresponsible start in life, like my father. When he got into the service, he developed purpose. He developed a sense of national um, dedication. Uh, of course, it was World War II. And he enlisted right at the heart of the war, uh, 1942, which was a, a very tough time for America and the Allies. And he served in radio intelligence. He was on the front lines in Germany, which was risky. And even more importantly, he was called at one point to testify at a war crimes trial where he was in some physical danger from the people who were accused. And the other four or five people who were called to testify dropped out uh, because they were afraid. But my father did not. He uh, wrote letters home about this. He went public with this. There are records of his testimony. He was courageous. Uh, I give him credit for moral courage. And that was- and The uh, army didn't particularly like that courage, right? That was not the kind of courage that gives you a pat on the back. Well, Eisen, well, yes and no. Uh, the officers accused did not like it, but General Eisenhower, who was in charge, of course, as you know, uh, liked it very much. He was the one that ordered my father to testify, and he was behind it all the way. And Eisenhower comes off. I did a historical um, research on Eisenhower. He was a phenomenal general. Uh, he, he was one of the first generals that really felt a close relationship with the troops, with the grunt soldiers, and spent a lot of time with them. He, has a, he was a shining example of character in the military and set a, a great example. And he was, he was behind uh, the, um, uh, the reform of military justice that my father took part in. So Eisenhower comes off to me as a shining hero through this whole episode. And of course, he was a very important part of the army since he was the uh, commanding uh, general. Yes, indeed. So, um, and, and you mentioned that your father acquired a sense of purpose and identification with the American ideal um, as he you know, became uh, uh, an active um, 
uh, actively engaged in the war. So, and in your other writings, you talk about purpose and its importance for young people and for all of us. So, um, how important was all of this for your father's uh, character development? And 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 also, I think you suggest that character isn't just something that exists in the abstract. It's something that can change and develop and alter depending on the experiences you have. That's right. And by the way, Paul, that's another way that we've gone way beyond Freud, who thought that character and these things were fixed at a very early age through some mystical process. But we've learned in our studies that character develops all through life. And uh, as long as the brain is alive and the mind keeps working, there's opportunities to grow. And part of the development is when you find some purpose in life that you dedicate yourself to, then it gives you a, it gives you a way to invest in the world beyond the self and, and not get self-absorbed and overly self-protective, but really um, have a fulfilling sense that your life means something. And my father clearly found that uh, first in the military and then after the military, he joined the War Department and then the State Department, the Foreign Service, and he dedicated his life to uh, to American values of the best kind, democracy. He spent years in Germany um, denazifying small towns, uh, putting in place after the war, uh, town officials that were were uh, that believed in democracy rather than fascism, and then he went on to serve in Southeast Asia in Thailand, where again he vigorously pursued an anti-communist agenda uh, through culture, through putting on uh, American exhibits and historical exhibits, creating homes where people could come and read American periodicals. So he really believed in the American ideals of liberty and democracy and dedicated his life to that. That is a purposeful life. And it gave me a way to admire him. In fact, he becomes a close acquaintance of the king. Yes, he, uh, he um, uh, and the king in Thailand is almost a, 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 a godlike figure. And my father had a great sense of humor that was part of his character all the way from the start. And he was often said he, he, the king enjoyed his company. He could make the king smile. And my father's wife also started a ballet school. Uh, she was a French ballerina, his second wife, I should say, after he, he divorced my mother. Um, but she started a ballet school that the queen sent her daughter to. And so my father and his wife became very close to the king and queen, which gave them special uh, opportunities to promote uh, as I said, American values of democracy and liberty. Well, he was also golfing with the king, wasn't he? He golfed with, I, I don't know if the king golfed, he golfed with the prime minister uh, and the other high officials. And they loved to golf with him because he was a great golfer. And that also gave him a chance to do his job by going out in the golf course, which apparently, so, and, 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 you know, he was kind of that kind of character that he was, he was a very uh, easygoing, uh, fun-loving guy. And uh, you could just imagine him going out there and saying, great, I don't have to go to the office today. I get to play golf and I'm still doing my work. Well, um, you talk about regrets and, and I, I, I sort of saw a good regrets and bad regrets. 
And uh, so should we have regrets in life? And you say yes and no, we should have good regrets, but not. So maybe you could elaborate on that, uh, sure. that idea. Well, I think everybody that's lived uh, without exception has some regrets. Uh, and the question is how you deal with them, because of course you make mistakes. Uh, I, I don't know any human being that hasn't made some mistake, uh, whether major or minor, that they wouldn't go back and correct if they had a chance. Uh, but um, the important thing, um, it's a little bit like that uh, Frank Sinatra song where he said, regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. Uh, that's very often our attitude about regrets. I don't want to think about them, don't look back. But what I write about in my book, I write quite a bit about how to handle regrets psychologically. And I think that Frank Sinatra's uh, line from the song is not the best recipe for our psychological health moving forward. I think it's best to confront the regrets, to admit that we have them, to say, yeah, I didn't make a mistake. But that doesn't mean that my life has turned out for the worst because of it. It could be that it put me on a certain path that led me to the person I am now. And I, I accept that. I can affirm that. Plus, there are things I learned from. If I really honestly confront with the mistake I made, there are things that I learned from that that I can either avoid the same mistake moving forward or maybe doing something better. So... We all have regrets. Uh, there are good ways and bad ways to think about them. And a bad way to think about them is just to stay hung up on them and always be bitter and say, gee, my life would be so much better if I had, I don't know, whatever, bought Amazon stock <laughs> when somebody told me to 30 years ago or whatever, uh, whatever it is. That's one of my regrets, by the way. You know, there you go. A chance to buy Amazon stock about 40 years ago. Yeah. Okay. So there you go. But, you know, if you if you were a zillionaire now, Paul, it could well be that that might have led you in the wrong direction in life. You don't know. I mean, you're the, you're the person you are now because you did not do that. And and maybe you also learned something about stock buying. But in any case, uh, there are positive. Uh, there's an upside to every mistake that you've made and thinking about your regrets in a in a way to salvage the positivity out of those uh, directions in life. I think is a much it's a much it's a way to uh, to be much more optimistic and positive and even wise uh, moving forward. Well, thank you, Bill. Uh, you've written a an excellent book. I, I'm sure there's a, a wide audience for this. Uh, so thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Well, I've, it's been delightful. Thank you so much, Paul. It's it's great. It's always great talking to you. So thank you. I have been speaking with William Damon, director of the Center on Adolescence at Stanford University and the author of a just released Templeton Press publication entitled A Round of Golf with My Father, The New Psychology of Exploring Your Past to Make Peace with Your Present. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.